Hello and welcome to The Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Friday, October 9th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy as we continue to confront and battle the coronavirus pandemic. Coming up today on the podcast is an interview I did yesterday afternoon with the head women's basketball coach at George Fox University, Michael Coppolino. It was a really fun interview. I enjoyed it a lot. He's had a really interesting coaching path, coaching journey up to this point. So I'm excited for all of you to hear it and hopefully enjoy it as much as I did. Uh, Before we get to the interview, we have the election ongoing. You know, election day is on November 3rd, but the election has started. It's early voting in so many states around the country, vote by mail, early in-person voting. If you go to IWillVote.com, you can check out all the information you need for your state to make sure that your vote is cast in the in the way that you want to uh, do it this this year. And, you know, Election Day is, is game day at, at the end of Election Day. It's not just what happened on game day, but it's all the work that goes into it beforehand. So everything you can do now weeks out to make sure you're set up to vote, make sure if you want to vote early, you can do that, make sure all your friends and family are registered and that they are voting. All that will have the help with the getting the desired result on election day. So without further ado, I'm going to hit the music. And when we come back is my interview from yesterday afternoon with Michael Coppolino. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at George Fox University, Michael Coppolino. A Massachusetts native, he began his coaching career at Alfred University as an assistant coach for the men's program in 2011. He then joined the staff at Mount St. Mary College as an assistant on the men's side for one year before taking over as the head women's basketball coach at Mount St. Mary. He, In his six years at the helm, he helped guide Mount St. Mary to a 91-69 and record, a trip to the second round of the NCAA tournament in 2019, and was twice named the Skyline Conference Coach of the Year. In the summer of 2019, he was hired as na- at, at National Powerhouse George Fox as their new women's basketball coach. And in his first year at the helm, he went 23-6 and and helped lead the team to the Sweet 16 before the tournament was unfortunately canceled due to the ongoing global coronavirus pandemic. He also has two World Series rings from his time working for the Boston Red Sox. I'm thrilled he's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? David, appreciate you having me on today. Uh, I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing well. Hanging in there. You know, we're all just trying to take it day by day and make the most of uh, the situation we're all living in. Yes, very unique situation. So, So speaking of your situation where we're recording this on Thursday, October 8th, colleges around the country have been back for almost a month. From, from anywhere between a month and eight weeks now, kind of talk about what the first month has been like at George Fox and this new normal for college students and kind of what George Fox's plans are uh, for the fall just in terms of testing. Is it all online, people on campus? Just like a quick summary. Yeah, uh, g- good question. Uh, unfortunately, it changes pretty much on a weekly basis for us. So the answer I may give you right now may change in okay. five to seven days as we've as we've come accustomed to. Uh, but yeah, we've been back uh, on campus now since uh, the third week of August. So we actually, as of today, uh, as of start of next week, we only have six weeks left of classes. So oh wow, 
we've been very, very lucky and, and privileged to uh, have less than five cases total on campus so far. Uh, and we start testing specifically for athletics. We started this week uh, wow. where we do 50% of our roster and then the other 50% two weeks later. So the, actually we started with the coaches this week and uh, every coach tested uh, negative. So we'll start we the, uh, really ramping up our testing this point forward but uh yeah the first month and a half we've been in classes and we just started practice and just like everyone else it's been a very uh unique situation and uh, circumstance over the last six seven weeks to say to say the least 100 and, and just with your location with the school being in oregon not just did you have the coronavirus to deal with there was also these horrible very tragic and very serious wildfires this this past fall uh, that we saw the images from parts of California, whether it's the Bay Area and even in parts of Oregon, where the sky was this crazy burnt orange color and the air quality was terrible. Did did those wildfires affect the school at all this this fall? Yeah, uh, we were actually pretty lucky. We they got within ten miles of us. Wow! So we had evacuation plans in place. They were going to move the, the students to, to a couple to a couple different churches, uh, certainly a, a ways from the fire. But we were pretty blessed and fortunate to not have uh, them get any closer than 10 miles, so we did not have to evacuate. But uh, with the wildfires being, being so terrible, we had terrible air quality for about 7 to 10 days, where you'd go outside, just like you said, it would be bright orange. And uh, equally as bad as that, it's almost as if I tell everyone, you know, when you go next to a campfire and mm. for an hour or two and then you come inside and you smell smoke on you and it just smells smoky and just uh, it's not a good smell. That's how it smelled pretty much 24 hours a day for seven, 10 days. So no one could go outside. No one could oh, walk the class per se, but we couldn't really do workouts outside. Mm. Couldn't, no one could run outside. So it made things pretty challenging uh, on top of the COVID pandemic. So just another thing to add uh, onto the list of things that have happened in 2020. But fortunate, uh, we've had some rain over the last couple of weeks and uh, they've extinguished all the fires in our area. There's still some in California, but mm-hmm. in terms of our area, we're uh, in the clear now. But I know a lot of people uh, were affected. And I think we had five or seven students where their families lost their homes completely oh, wow. during it. So, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty bad for a couple weeks uh, in September. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's it's one thing to see it on the news happening so far away, and then it's another thing to have it happen so close to home and have it be evacuation plans in, in order. It's just a whole nother level. Yeah, yeah. It was not a fun situation, to say the least. So during the fall, besides for those days where you were really concerned with the wildfires in terms of the air quality to do stuff outside, what has been the, the program's uh, workout routine this fall, given that it's so unusual. It's not like everyone is back. You can play five to five pickup as much as you want, lifting. Kind of how has the program and really yourself adjusted to this new normal mentally where we're all kind of creatures of, of habits in college athletics where we know the days and what days we have to be ready by for certain things. How are you kind of adjusting and just the team adjusting to this whole new normal where we don't know what's going to happen now, next week, or even when the season could even happen? Yeah, it's it's been quite the challenge. So we, I mean, I know every state is different, and just part of the state of Oregon and our governor 
uh, right now, we cannot do anything contact related mm-hmm. inside. Uh, so ultimately, we're not playing any pickup, doing nothing really on the floor. Uh, some of our players are shooting on their own. Uh, ultimately, with no one else really there, or one person rebounding for them with a mask on. But uh, we're still working out, uh, still doing lifting and, and doing some some cardio outside uh, when possible when there's no smoke or <laughs> any other hindrance mm-hmm. around. But we're just trying to make the most of the situation. Uh, we we talk a good amount as a team on, on being positive and really seeing the bright side of things. Uh, certainly we're on campus. I know uh, many schools right now are either uh, working remotely or online. So again, at least we're on campus and we're here right. with each other and it's not ideal. It's definitely not ideal, but uh, we're just trying to have the mindset that at least something is better than nothing. And uh, we got a great group of girls that has really bonded well together. So we're uh, again, just, following the guidelines, following the rules, and uh, just trying to make the, the best of the situation and hoping that uh, we can be back on the floor uh, face-to-face and playing actual basketball sometime in the in the next few months. For sure. So so let's go back to the beginning, Coach. I mentioned at the top you're from Massachusetts, but, you know, Massachusetts, it's, it's a relatively big place. A, a lot of towns in Massachusetts, a lot of cities. Where did you grow up in Massachusetts, and kind of how did you first fall in love with, uh, with the game of basketball? Yeah, so I grew up in Acton, Massachusetts, so it's about 25 miles directly west uh, of Boston, so about 40 minutes or so right outside the city. Uh, and in terms of the game of basketball, I was, I, I mean, I played it growing up, and I actually played three sports. I was golf, baseball, and basketball. Uh, I actually fell more towards golf near the end of high school okay. and actually went to uh, Eckerd College in, in Florida on a golf scholarship. So actually beautiful college. did that. I, I, was, I was better uh, better golfer than I was at the other two sports, <laughs> and that's kind of uh, – <laughs> I went that path in, in college and uh, then kind of circled back to, to the game of basketball post-college. So unlike some people, obviously, who play it all four years of college and then go into coaching, I was uh, took a little different path where I did a different sport and then came back to it uh, post college so when i was in high school our baseball team is nationally ranked awesome awesome team and for our spring training trip you know the northeast where it can't get on the field basically until april at the earliest because of snow and terrible weather we would go down to florida every year and we would practice at eckert college and it's a beautiful beautiful school in in florida in the saint petersburg area it's absolutely gorgeous when you're going to school down there just on your visit and it's like are you texting your friends on January 12th as Boston, the area, has gotten their 14th snowstorm of the year? And you're like, went to the beach today, guys. This is this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely uh, – it could have been worse places to be. Actually, <laughs> as you know, uh, being in the Northeast, it's uh, a lo- long winters, sometimes four or five, sometimes it feels like six months mm-hmm. where it's kind of cold and, and certainly not <laughs> – ideal to be outside right uh but yeah being in florida it was not too shabby coming back from christmas and we, we'd be back around january 1st and uh it would be generally speaking between 60 to 70 uh the, yeah, the lowest it really got was 50s occasionally <laughs> but really 60s and 70s and like the dead of the winter which is always uh nice and a little more comforting to walk outside with with shorts on year-round versus right. <laughs> as you know in the northeast that's basically cut in half so it 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 was something that i i cherished and i'm not a big fan of the cold weather to begin with so uh, it was me to me it was to 
me was really nice. And yeah, some of my friends came down and visited, but they were definitely a little jealous, a little <laughs> jealous uh, during the winter months when there were some long, uh, long cold days, as you know. So yeah, uh, I, I won't lie, Coach. I'm from you know the basketball background, baseball. I I know more about those recruiting processes. What is the what is it? What is the golf recruiting process like? Are you sending out highlight tapes as well, or, or is it really score based at local tournaments? And, and, and kind of just how did you end up choosing Eckerd uh, for college? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's one of those sports where it's more so score based. I mean, you, you can send your your swing, mm-hmm. which I did out, uh, but ultimately, like I mean, like swimming. Certainly, I'm, I mean, I don't know swimming that well. I'm guessing it's all time-based, same with track and field. You know, it's like certain sports are more so you don't really need to watch as much film as as much as, okay, give me your score or give me the number, and that kind of tells the story in and of itself. So uh, that was just the way I, I knew I wanted to get out of the cold, and uh, <laughs> I reached out to X amount of schools, I remember maybe eight or ten down south, and a guidance counselor in high school just ended up recommending that one. Uh, both for the business program and for golf, and one thing led to another, and end up uh, getting a partial scholarship and going down to Florida for four years. So it, it kind of worked out. Now, around this the same time, high school, college, you started working with the Boston Red Sox. Uh, how did how did you just uh, get involved with the Red Sox, and just and just what was your job with them? Yeah, so I was pretty lucky again and privileged to to get a summer job that. Uh, even I've had some uh, grown adults say that they do that for free when they're, when they're 40 years old, which is kind of scary because <laughs> hopefully don't want too many 40-year-old bat boys. But um, uh, yeah, I I was I lived in a town, Acton, where the general manager lived about a mile away from me. Okay. So, um, now long story short, my brother uh, is six years younger than me. He was playing, uh, I believe he was he was about six, seven years old. I was about 13 or 14. And he was playing, and then he was playing with the general manager's son, uh, T-Ball. And I was at a game, and I saw him. I was nervous. I just figured I'd go over to him. Went over, and I said, hey, could I be the bat boy? And he said, you can't work uh, for the Red Sox or any organization until you're 16 years old. Just, just that's, that's the law. So I waited two years, uh, two, three years. The day I turned 16... Uh, went over to his house, rode my bike over to their house, uh, slipped a long letter underneath his door. I wrote it why I was passionate about the Red Sox and how I really wanted to, to work for them and how it would be awesome, amazing to be you know, the bat boy or work for uh-huh. the Red Sox organization. Six months passed, someone ended up quitting, and uh, I filled into the visiting clubhouse and was uh, the visiting team bat boy essentially through high school and through college. So that wow. was... Kind of how I, I got it, a little bit of luck along the way, but uh, I was pretty fortunate to have a pretty pretty cool summer job for uh, quite some time. Now, now, what year was was this? As as the early two thousands was, you know, I'm a Yankees fan. It was the heyday of, of the Yankees Red Sox rivalry. Just just kind of what was the timeline for any baseball fans out there of who was on the team uh, and just what was going on in the baseball world at that time? Yeah, I feel really old saying this. Two thousand <laughs> to two thousand ten. <laughs> So I was in high, middle of high school, 2000, uh, and then I, I ended up finishing college around 2007. So I did a few years after college, even when I was working in Boston. So uh, yeah, that 2000-2010 time period, for the most part, was the uh, a good old heyday of the Pedro Martinez and uh, the was the beginning of of, of Poppy, of, of David mm-hmm. Ortiz, and then Manny Ramirez. So that was 
kind of when they were in their primes, and certainly right. when the Red Sox won the World Series in 2004 and then 2007. That was a pretty fun time to be there. Uh, a little different now because they've they've won a few, and uh, right. I, I don't I don't think the rivalry, in my opinion, is as intense as it was. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like in the early 2000s or late. Uh, like around 1999 to 2005, that was kind of the the peak of the rivalry, at least mm-hmm. from my from my opinion. Uh, but yeah, it was it was a pretty fun time to, uh, to to be around. So, just for just for people who don't know, you're the visiting team's bat boy. What does that really entail? Like, what are all the things that go into that? And obviously, you're from the Massachusetts area. Are there rules about like you know if Manny hits a big homer, like can you not smile at? <laughs> at all because you're in the yeah, other team's no. dugout like like how did you work with all that yeah yeah good uh good, good question i uh i mean i was in the visit so i was in a yankees uniform people mm. throw stuff at me say stuff to me and I'm like, <laughs> I'd, always, I'd be like all right first of all i'm 17 years old uh two like i'm i work for the red sox so people are vicious and people would throw stuff all the time and, think I'd be a part of their team where in reality I had like my Red Sox shirt on underneath because, I, mean, I was working in the clubhouse so it was, yeah, it was, it was an interesting situation uh, but essentially uh, being a clubhouse worker and, and I mean that way I just go out there for the games and do whatever they need but basically you're doing whatever the players need uh, six seven hours before the game up till a few hours after the game so we'll call an average baseball game at 7 p.m. Uh, I mean, this is depending on school and whatnot. You're there sometime early afternoon, one, two, three o'clock, or whenever I get out of school, and then uh, are there till eleven o'clock or midnight. Basically, cleaning up after them. They need, they want you to run an errand, go grab something. Uh, A pitcher, all of a sudden, the visiting team is pitching the next day in Milwaukee. You'll drive them to the airport at three or four in the afternoon because they'll fly out before the team. Right. So it's literally one of like 50 different things you can possibly imagine that you're basically you and a staff of four other guys are there tending to basically 25, 30 baseball players, trainers, coaches. So there's like probably 35 guys in the locker room and you five guys are kind of in charge to help them out and clean their stuff and make sure that they're comfortable during their time in Boston. How did you find any time to golf? Because the baseball season is the best weather in, in the Northeast as as well. Yeah, I, I mean, during the summer was easier because certainly mm-hmm. I could do it in the morning. I mean, gotcha. when school was in session, mm-hmm. really, really tough. Uh, I mean, the only good part about baseball is, as you know, you're generally home for six or seven straight days and then yeah. gone for a week or two. So it's not like it was consecutive per se for like a month straight. There were breaks, but... There were definitely some some challenging six to day, ten day uh, periods where I either had to work out in the morning or go go hit golf balls at the driving range somewhere in between uh, when I had an hour break. So it was definitely a challenge at times, but I made the best of it. Obviously, two thousand four is the famous comeback down three zero against my New York Yankees, breaking the curse of the Bambino. What was it like? You know. You're a Massachusetts guy, Red Sox fan. Being on the field during those comebacks in Game Four and and specific and and Game Five, and just watching your team go to the World Series for the first time, you know, in a really really long time and winning for the first time in 86 years. Yeah, it was it was pretty surreal. The interesting part of it was I was in, I started college then, mm-hmm. so uh, w- during the playoffs, as you know, well, normal years, the playoffs in October. And I was at school. So, I mean, I came back once or twice. Yes. 
flights were dirt cheap back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we'd come back and then like work the weekend or, or I came back for like the World Series. But it, it, was, it was certainly pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty amazing to, to be a part of. And certainly when they gave me a World Series ring after, it was, uh, it was pretty cool, pretty neat. Uh, and something that I, I certainly cherish. Uh, not something that I, I even look at anymore because uh-huh. I keep it in a safe deposit box. I don't <laughs> wear it around because it's way too big and uh, just a little little too much to wear wear around day in and day out. But something that was a pretty cool uh, piece of memorabilia that they, they gave us for being a part of it. You could just do the uh, the old Pat Riley trick of when recruits come to campus, just lay out the championships rings. They don't have to know that it's from the World Series, but it's just championship rings. Yeah, just championship. I don't know. I don't know if baseball is as popular in Oregon on the West Coast as it is, as you know, with the, on the East Coast with the Yankees, Red Sox is a little different territory. But yeah, that's not a bad idea. So, moving forward, now you're working with the Red Sox for a decade plus. You're at Eckerd. You you get your degree. You mentioned you you were working in Boston. Kind of, how did you think to or start getting involved in in coaching and basketball you know coaching basketball with your golf background and baseball background and finance background what what drew you to, to basketball yeah I, I get asked that a, a decent amount uh i i finished college and i started working in finance uh at a, at a private bank and i did it for a couple of years two two and a half years and during that time uh, a couple things happened one i realized that i hated it so that was not fun <laughs> uh i would I, I tell everyone at any time, like when you're in college or, or in any school and it's Sunday night and you're dreading going to class the next day, is not, not a good feeling at right. all. One of the worst feelings in the world. But worse yet is if you work a job where you, every Sunday night <laughs> you dread going to work on Monday and then it's five straight days and it happens the next week and the next week and the next week. Yeah. That, that, that gets old pretty quickly. So that uh, accompanied with, uh, and in all honesty, I had a, we had a family friend who passed away of pancreatic cancer at 52, uh, right around that time, right when I graduated, 2000, 2008, 2009. Uh, and I remember being at the funeral, and I was like, if I only have 25, whatever, 27 years left to live, I, I better do something that I enjoy and I'm passionate about, because going to work every day and mm. being miserable, is this can't be like what life is about. <laughs> so... That those two things really led off a, a chain of events of me talking to some people, doing some soul searching, and helping out at my high school, uh, helping out uh, at Acton Boxborough Regional High School, doing some stuff for the, the coach there, and doing some advanced scouting or taping, doing some film work for him. And I'm like, I really enjoy this. Mm-hmm. So that led into a grad assistant position at Alfred University, uh, and then that led into where I am now about 10 years later now. So it just kind of worked its way out, but there were definitely some uh, some highs and lows along the way, to, to say the least. And so you, you, you do that, you're coaching at your high school, then you're a GA at Alfred. A lot of times people hear the uh, graduate assistant role, and they don't realize that you know at a Division One school, what those duties of a GA is completely different than at, than at a Division three school where the GA may be the only assistant coach you have, right? It's uh, depending on the staff or Division two. It, it, it can mean a lot of different things. What were your sort of responsibilities at Alfred? And were, were they kind of similar to what 
this, the, the type of stuff you're doing at the Red Sox, where a lot of being a D3 assistant is doing a little bit of everything and just whatever the, like the whole team needs. Yeah, no, that's a really good comparison because it's, it's a lot of quote unquote dirty work or, or a lot of grinding mm-hmm. for very little money. <laughs> yeah. I started working for the Red Sox. I was making $47 a game, which after taxes came out to about $39 a day uh, until, until they changed it a few years after I started working. And it was 10 hour days, so I was basically making $390 an hour, which is very equivalent to what I was doing in Alfred because I was, I was working some 8, 10, 12 hour days and basically making the same thing, making like a couple dollars an hour if you actually did it out. So kind of scary to think about uh, that now, right. actually. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's the, the good part about the Red Sox is it really prepared me to that attention to detail and doing a lot of little tasks. Uh, and, and I did the same thing with, with Dale uh, at Alfred. He, he The nice part about being at Division Three is, again, he only had one assistant. So mm-hmm. I helped out in practice on the floor, did some skill development stuff, was fully engaged in recruiting. We each had our, our list of recruits, so you really get thrown into the fire at Division Three, where Division One is certainly a lot different, where only the assistant coaches can be on the road recruiting at, at Division Three, uh, the grad assistants, you know, mm-hmm. everyone recruits. So it, it definitely helped uh, working at Fenway and work some long days for very little money to, to prepare to, to do a little bit of everything, which really helped me. Uh, and I'll honestly see the, the clear picture as a coach because when you, when you go into college coaching, you really have no idea what to expect, Right. especially when you didn't play. Even if you did play a college sport, like coaching is a completely different aspect of it. Uh, so uh, I, I was very lucky to, to be to be given a lot of responsibility by, by Dale, and, and he really uh, gained some trust in me after the first year, and I got to do a lot of things which, which helped me grow and develop as a coach. And so after that year at Alfred, you go to Mount St. Mary. And I'm just curious, Coach, without that, as you said, that playing background uh, in, in basketball at a collegiate level, how did you kind of get the guys on the team to, to buy into what you were saying and buy into like the, the idea that you can help them? Just because you didn't play, that doesn't mean that you can't help them get better and you can't help the program win. Kind of how did you uh, confront that uh, with the players? Yeah, that's something that you, you certainly got to build their trust and respect uh, off the court first. So just trying to develop relationships with the guys to start. And, and ultimately, there's nothing I, I can do. You know what I mean? I can't go back in time and all of a sudden mm-hmm. go play at a certain level or a certain school and then get that instantaneous respect. So to me, I mean, just the way I've always been is just try to outwork people, go shadow other coaches, whether it's like, whether it's a Buzz Williams or even Brad Stevens, I mean, played at Division Three, DePauw. So I just try to always model myself after other coaches who may not have either played professionally or played at, like, Duke or North Carolina. So ultimately trying to just learn their path, whether it's via watching coaching clinics or YouTube videos or going to practices. I just try to try to kind of carve out my own niche and, and do my best because uh, certainly – that that's all I could do is just keep moving forward and continue to improve and outwork people and, and get better every day. And so you were an assistant for one season, correct? On the men's side for Mount St. Mary before jumping over to the women's game, right? Yes, that's correct. What was that adjustment like going from the men's game to the women's game? You know, obviously the court's the same size, the hoop's still 10 feet tall, but 
it's got to be a little different being an assistant coach on a men's program to a head coach of a women's program. Yeah, it, it was a, a whirlwind to say the least. It was unexpected. Uh, I was there for a year under Ryan Kalabowski. We had a we had a good, uh, really good season the year before, and I was looking forward to the second season. And <laughs> unexpectedly, on November second, uh, I was in my office, and uh, the athletic director called me in. Uh, at first, I thought I was in trouble, and then he <laughs> said, "We just." We just let go of our women's coach. There was an altercation between uh, him and one of the players, uh, and the assistant on the women's team doesn't want to doesn't want to be the head coach. Would you like to take over as an, on an intern basis this year? Uh, and I said, "Can I let you know by the end of the day?" <laughs> because I, I had to go for a walk for a second because a few things. I'm like, okay, I had so many things going through my head, but one of the things was. I'd seen that team on the floor practice uh, in October just uh-huh. for the few weeks that we just started. And I'd seen some of the girls around and they just really were not good at all. Like really <laughs> bad. So I, so like I, I called a few people, certainly called my parents and, and Dale and I talked to like a handful of people that afternoon and made the decision to just run with it for the sole fact of, that the common theme I was getting when I was talking to people is it's really hard to become a head coach, doesn't yeah. matter what level you're at, and you can always go backwards, but it's really tough to just jump forwards. And sometimes it takes, depending on what level you're at. I mean, Division One's much longer, but it takes four, five, ten, sometimes fifteen years to be a head coach. You know, depending on what level you're at and the circumstance. So I, I'm like, you know what? Worst comes to worst, and worst comes to worst, I can just do it for one year and then come back, but that one year uh i certainly learned a lot uh and started recruiting and then uh just snowballed one into the other and and here's where i am now uh, about seven years later so so that that first year you, you mentioned okay the team may have been you know a little low in the in the talent department you guys went five and twenty just how hard was that year for you to just deal with the the losing and, and did you have any moments of not necessarily regret, but where you're sitting on the couch at at the end of the day saying, what did I get myself into with this with this team and, and just this whole job as a whole? Yeah, that, that moment certainly came. Uh, I mean, it was a, the month of November was crazy. Uh-huh. Went home. We only had a few games before Thanksgiving. Then we played uh, more going before Christmas. So not sure exactly. I know we were 0-12 at one point. I want to th- say we were 0-8 ish uh-huh. or oh nine right around there going into Christmas and anytime you go home for Christmas and you see family relatives whoever and they ask how the season's going and you <laughs> haven't won a game yet is is really not not a good feeling right <laughs> and and it's just not great to tell people that you're oh nine or oh and ten it just it made me feel like I had no idea what I was doing and that I was just a terrible coach because mm. I mean what <laughs> reflection of you is, is the record of the team so yeah there were several moments in the year but after we won some games and I started recruiting uh things did get better after that year but I, I knew at, at the end of the day uh you can only win so much with a certain amount of talent and uh, I certainly gave it my all made a ton of mistakes and uh learned a whole lot from it but I, I going back I would would not change that for anything because I, I definitely grew and developed and and learned a lot as a coach during those uh, those four months of barely squeaking out a few wins. So. 
Well, well, during the, those first two seasons, you know, there there was there was losing, there was but there was a lot of building as well. You were building, you know, your own confidence level as a coach and learning what to do, but also you're you're building that that foundation for the program and, and really trying to change it from what the old coach was doing to a coach Capolino style of of team and, and system. It's it's very difficult from the outside, you know, just like someone like me or someone across the country to say what's what's working and what's you know is is this what he's trying to build working because we're not at practice every day. The only thing we can judge you on is the wins, and when those aren't coming, how hard is it to have faith in what you're trying to build, and also just what are the signs that you're looking for during the season that it may not be resulting in wins right now, but we're on the right track. Yeah, that, that, that's tough because, as you know, we, we live in a day and age where, I mean, especially in coaching or most athletic programs, you, the first thing people ask you is, what's your record? So you're judged by your wins and losses, you yeah. know, even though you could be improving every day in practice and you certainly could be making progress. It, it's people look at the bottom line like, oh, that, what's your record? So that's that's a challenging part. I knew we were improving and getting better uh, slowly but surely. I mean, we when I first started, even the, the first team I inherited was just the, just the start was terribly out of shape. So we, we literally just some days, I mean, obviously we ran offense, we ran defense, but we just made fitness goals every year, every, excuse me, every day mm-hmm. to try to, make sure that we finish a, fir- a certain sprint at a certain time or when we came back from Thanksgiving break that uh, we all finish this in the next amount of time because ultimately some sports like golf you can get away with not being in shape <laughs> but unfortunately in basketball, football, like uh, some sports when you actually have to run, it's really challenging to mm-hmm. uh, compete with another team when you're uh, out of wind after four times up and down the floor. So that <laughs> it was just starting at, at ground zero and slowly building it up, which – I knew, but ultimately everyone else when they come to the games, so you lose by 20 or 25, don't see that. But I just tried to take uh, take pride in just making sure our team knew that I believed in them and that each day we just got a little bit better. And ultimately just the, your, the coaching staff and the, and, the, and the players, only two people that are there day in and day out, everyone else just sees the, the product once or twice a week. So right. it definitely was a challenge. So then once – that the winning started happening a few seasons later and you're named Skyline Conference Coach of the Year. You know, how does that change your approach as a coach going from where you started as being the hunter almost to now you're the hunted? Teams are coming after you guys as you're now one of the top teams in the conference. How does how did how did your coaching uh approach change if it did at all going from hunter to hunted? Yeah, it, it definitely definitely changes mentality wise. Uh, it, it's a lot better to win than to lose. Tell you. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's you sleep a lot better at night when you uh, have more W's than you do uh, losses. So, yeah, I mean, it, it changes, but ultimately that that comes with the, the territory because you're, you're developing, getting better, and then the kids that you're recruiting, uh, generally speaking, when you win, those kids more often than not, want to come to a winning program, and hopefully they have that mentality, and you can ingrain some things in them, and then they, you keep the ball rolling, per se. Uh, easier said than done, but mm-hmm. it's uh, c- certainly for, for the morale, the, the, the team, but at, at the end of the day, it, it's still, even if you win a game, per se, by 10 or 15 points, and that your standard is raising, 
it's still challenging because you still want to continue to. I, I knew with better teams, yes, we we could win, but we win. We want to win by a certain amount or play mm. the best of our ability. Whereas when you have a losing team or a team that isn't as skilled and talented, you still want to play to the best of your ability, even though sounds weird to say playing the best of your ability against a really good team maybe losing by 10 yeah. whereas when you have a better program playing the best of your ability maybe beating another team by 25 or 30 so you're still trying to raise that bar and get i guess to the to the peak or do the best you can do as a program so it's it's never really ending winning your first NCAA tournament game is obviously a milestone for so many coaches you guys did that uh, in 2019 in the tournament. What was that like for you, seeing the, the culmination of all the work from the years before resulting in not just making the NCAA tournament, but, but winning that game and advancing to the second round? Yeah, it was, it was, it was unbelievable. We had, we had a great group, and I knew going into the season we, we were talented, and, and I, I knew that we were going to have to play some freshmen, and if they stepped up, we, we could definitely – uh, make a run at it, and uh, lucky enough, we uh, had a few freshmen that really stepped up uh, in that uh, first round game. We had one freshman, Lauren, who had 18 points, and I believe Andy had 14. So we had two freshmen who scored 32 combined points in that game. So granted, they, it wasn't like that every game. They had their highs and lows like anyone does throughout the year, but uh, we had a, a few freshmen, three or four, that really, really stepped up throughout the year. And again, when when they played well, they they were about they, they made a big difference for us, and they uh, seemed to click at the right time. And that certainly helps when you play in the NCAA tournament. You got to right. be uh, a little bit of luck involved, but certainly playing well at the right time. So after the season, you decide to, and you have the opportunity to to make the jump to George Fox which is all the way across the country in the state of Oregon, going from upstate, uh, going from upstate New York to Oregon is a, is a huge jump for basically anybody who's not from Oregon, right? What was that whole process like in the decision to not just take over uh, a powerhouse per se in the Division Three women's game, but also move to the other coast of, of the country? Yeah, good question. I'll give you the short version because <laughs> I, I feel like I could talk on this for 15 minutes. It, it was certainly, when, I, when the job opened, there have been other jobs that had opened, which I'd either applied to or certainly uh, thought I was qualified for. But uh, when it opened, um, it, it, things kind of just worked out. Uh, I want to say it was fate, but <laughs> I w- went to the Final Four that year and I ran into the coach who Mike Meek, who just uh, just left to get the other job, so I was actually I had a phone interview and I saw Mike Meek, the the prior coach, that evening. And then the next day, I ran into Scott Ruick, who's now at Oregon State, who was here before Mike. Oh wow! So inevitably, as I was going through the process, and I had the phone interview, and then I met those two, and I just ran into them wow. again, being at, at the Final Four in Tampa. So at some point, you're like, okay, is this meant to be? <laughs> like, is this? <laughs> There's, there's a reason that I, I should be going out there when all of a sudden you're meeting the two prior coaches and having conversations with them in the hallway or out uh, at night and inevitably one thing led to another. So, uh, it, yeah, in, in coaching, the, the interesting part is you may think like another job opens, like, oh, I really want to go there, but it, things are so competitive, whether it's Division One, Two, II, or Three. If, it, if, it, if a Division Three job opens, there could be 75, 100, 150 people that apply for it. So it's 
some people are like, oh, well, why didn't you go to uh, uh, Tufts or why did he not go to Bowdoin or why did you not go to school in New England? I'm like, yeah, I've applied to some jobs, but <laughs> I've never got a call back for half of them. So, you know, it's it's kind of like you got to go where you're wanted and where it's the right opportunity and where the right fit is. So it, it just kind of worked out here. But yeah, again, it's it's really tough to to, to, to pick and choose where you want to go in the coaching profession. You kind of it has to be again the right fit for you and the school, and it's just something that kind of uh, worked out well. And I've been really happy and satisfied over the past uh, year and a half since I arrived. So once you arrived on campus, obviously you, you knew about George Fox just from applying, but then but then once you you took the job, how did you kind of deal with the expectations of the George Fox program, who under their previous coach went 230 and 35 in its previous nine seasons, six conference titles, eight trips to the NCAA tournament? And also uh, finishing twice as a national runner-up, how did you kind of deal with those ex- the, the external expectations of what a George Fox women's basketball program is? Yeah, a complete opposite of what happened at Mount St. Mary. We had yeah. no expectations, and I was just hoping to win a couple games. Uh, and here, it's the complete opposite. It's almost as if flipped upside down when you lose a couple games that the sky's falling. So that uh, certainly was an adjustment, and I would say the biggest adjustment was coming into a program, which is certainly successful, yes, but having five seniors who had played a lot, who were very accustomed to the old system, and having them change after three years of having a lot of success and where they press and play 94 feet uh, for the entire game, where we really rarely pressed last year whatsoever, uh, and then playing more in the half court was definitely something that took some time and, mm. and trust and just uh, everyone adapting, me adapting to the players and them adapting to me. Uh, definitely, definitely took some time. It took several months, including our first game when we lost by 19. Mm. Uh, it w- w- was certainly a challenge. But again, I just try to try to get coming every day, get better, get the team focused and have them improve and and again, it, it worked out in the end that we had a really good run to end the year, but it definitely was not easy or it was not a, uh, although we, we started last year, I think we were 9-1. and one. There, there were definitely a lot of uh, bumps and bruises along the way in order to get to where we did last year. People always talk about this this coach in like in professional sports as, as well. LeBron James goes from the Cavs to the Lakers. Oh, he's got to adjust to the Western Conference. Uh, Tom Brady leaves New England. He goes to Tampa Bay. He's got to adjust to the NFC. You changed conferences when you went from Mount St. Mary to George Fox. You went from the Skyline to the Northwest Conference. What is that really like as a coach to change conferences? Like, like what is really like the big deal about changing conferences? I mean, it's still basketball, even if you're playing on the West Coast rather than the East Coast. Yeah. I mean, certainly the coaching is different. Uh, the players, I mean, this, this is a top top-notched conference right now. The Skyline mm-hmm. certainly had a few good teams, and then the, the the bottom teams weren't nearly as strong. It was kind of like the top and the bottom here. I mean, Northwest Conference, we, we have nine teams, and any team can beat any other team on, on any given night. I know that's very cliche to say, but but yeah, just, adapting, I mean, it takes a little while. Uh, certainly it's not going to happen overnight, but it's something that you just kind of make the best of, and uh, probably the minus the other coaches in the conference and the teams is just the game schedule mm-hmm. uh, I would say would be the biggest thing uh, if you're in a different conference like I was we generally speaking played Wednesday Saturday or occasionally Tuesday Thursday Saturday 
here we basically play Friday, Saturday every single week. Mm. So playing back to back is different. You know, you got to prepare throughout the week right. for the second team and then the first team uh, that you're going to play that weekend. And then, of course, playing back to back games is just different. You know, in, in terms of scouting reports and having very, very little time to prepare for just just basically a shoot around, just to go over some stuff Saturday morning. Then you play at four o'clock after you played the night before. So and be able to make a small adjustment or watch film really quickly. So whereas other conferences, the other conference I was in, we had one, two, or sometimes three days uh, in between games, which makes a big difference in terms of right. prep and, you know, just less taxing on the players' players' bodies when they're playing every other day. is a lot different than playing back-to-back days. Uh, is, is definitely an adjustment. So this, this past year you mentioned, you know, it wasn't off to a rocky start, but there was a big adjustment period. Let's let's say from you taking over from from the old coach, high high expectations. Still, you guys started off uh, very successful. You were you were winning a lot of games after dropping that first one. Then, kind of just like in all Division three schools, the hammer drops per se, where you all have to stop. Uh, it's finals week, and the the focus changes from all the from all the the players to doing as well as they can on their finals. How did you kind of deal with? that break this year where you're trying to work things out, you're trying to keep getting better and adjusting and, and gelling and getting the, this thing right, where right in the middle of all that work, there's a, this two or three week break. Before then, you also go to Las Vegas for the D3Hoops.com major event. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that break is always a scary time because, I mean, if you, you you have a team that, that certainly is not either self-motivated or high quality, that's when you generally get out of shape and, you know, you, you forget things that you learn. But I was very, very privileged last year to have an amazing group of five seniors. And they really uh, led by example. They bought in and they, they had a group chat and they were all staying in shape. They were all doing mm-hmm. workouts during that time. So... Uh, again, it's not ideal. Of course, it never is to take more than right. two or three consecutive days off during the season. But uh, it, it helped them recover a little bit. We had a few injuries here and there, and they stayed in shape and obviously got to go home and be with their families for a little bit. So uh, not terrible, considering the, the five seniors now with a younger team, and if they get lax and they go home and you come back out of shape, then that's when you, you get into some major issues because you either get injuries and certainly being out of shape is, is not helpful at all in around January 1st. Right. But last year, we uh, they did a really good job staying in shape, and that, that obviously helped us in, in the second half. You guys come back. You win a big game against University of Scranton and Coach Nick DePillo, who was on this podcast back in the early spring. Great game in, in Vegas. And you guys are kind of rolling, and, and you end up winning – uh, the Northwest Conference beating Whitman in Walla Walla uh, in in a great game. Around that same time, you find out you're going to Virginia for the NCAA tournament at Marymount. Kind of when did you first hear about or learn the word coronavirus? Yeah, uh, beginning of March, right when we won uh, at the end of February, I believe it was February 28th or 20th. 28th or 29th, one of the last days of February we won. And then I, I heard it on the news, maybe March 2nd or 3rd. And then, of course, it started to pick up steam, uh, as everyone knows, pretty quickly. Uh, we went to uh, we went to Virginia, certainly had two uh, action-packed games, two, yeah. two really tough, good opponents. 
And then, of course, as, as the second game finished, uh, ironically, uh, I was sick, and so was about half the girls on our team. Oh, uh, wow. Third. So they had, uh, some, we had something going on, whether it was the flu or not feeling well for basically that week and the week before. And we, we then traveled all the way to uh, Virginia, won those games. On the way back, again, I still wasn't feeling well. That's when things really picked up when I was like, I started hearing more about it, and I was like, this is not good. And then that I think Wednesday, maybe March 10th, I'm not sure the exact date off the top mm. of my head, I remember when the, the NBA canceled, and yeah. then another organization canceled. I'm not sure what else. And then I knew that. I'm like, when, when professional sports starts canceling, that is not good because then college sports aren't going to keep playing. The professional right. sports are because they have a lot more resources and they could test and or, uh, you know, certainly they uh, have, have a lot more resources in general. So, yeah, so basically from March 2nd or 3rd through when it, they get canceled, maybe on the 12th or 13th, so that those 10 days is when things basically picked up every single day. Yeah, we... I feel like every school around the country deals with like the cold that everyone deals with when they come back from some type of break. And we never knew at Wesleyan, especially this, this past year, you know, everyone got, you know, the normal Wesleyan cold. But once the, the COVID stuff picked up, we were like, wait, was that COVID or was it just the normal, usual cold slash flu symptoms that go around every year? But that's definitely crazy to hear. That second round, so you win those two games at Marymount. You're going to the Sweet 16, your first trip to the Sweet 16. You're going to Amherst, another national power. Division Three wins basketball fans had that one circled on the calendar. Amherst had closed their gym to fans the first weekend. During that week, how did you go about balancing game planning for a team as good as Amherst, dealing with potentially all the precautions that either you guys were going to take or Amherst was, was going to take, and then the unfortunate cancellation later that, that week? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, certainly it was a challenge enough to prepare for Amherst. They're, generally speaking, always in the top ten, if not like top five. Yeah. Every time you look at any poll, they're they're always right up there, year in and year out, and very well coached. Uh, and we were just preparing for the game the, the best we could. Uh, actually, to our advantage, I would say, would be to have no fans because they couldn't have their home fans or yeah. you know any any one of the people that are in the local area come and support them and. and to me, it would be more of like a neutral site, which would certainly help us versus going to their home court and playing. So uh, I was okay with not having fans mm-hmm. just for that reason, you know, instead of being in a road environment, which we were just in a road environment. Uh, the, the prior weekend in Virginia, uh, I mean, the first game, Montclair was, was pretty neutral because they had some fans, so did we. But the second game certainly was playing the home team as a challenge, you know, yeah, especially when they have more fans there than you guys do. So. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it feels like it was three years ago that that happened. <laughs> so much has transpired over these last uh, six, seven months. But we just prepared the best we could, and we were—I uh, thought we had a really good game plan, to be honest, going in. And then we got on the floor uh, that Thursday, which was planned Friday, and then right as we were literally in the hallway, and they were huddling and doing their normal pre-practice just chat. Uh, they came in and told me, like, that's it. At, so, at Amherst? Right, or right as we were about to walk on the floor, at Amherst. Wow. Wow, so you guys yeah. made the, so you guys made the, the trip there. Yeah, we were there, yeah, and uh, about, to, about to get on the floor. So the toughest part of that by far, which I hope to never experience again, is most teams in the country, <laughs> of course, 
lose their last game, mm. but to go in before you finish your last game and to tell your seniors that we can't play, yeah. win or lose, is, is quite the unique uh, circumstance. It's obviously it's probably never happened. You know, it's to, to, to cancel a last game or not be able to play minus you getting like injured before your last game, you know, or mm. getting injured like the beginning of it. It's it's almost nearly impossible to be able to get on the floor and, and obviously play in that, that last game or that Sweet 16 game, which many of them anticipated, certainly, because the last few years they'd only made it to the second round and lost. So they, the seniors are really, really pumped and excited to potentially make a run at the Final Four, and I thought we could have, but unfortunately... Uh, we were we were told that the tournament was canceled and went back to the hotel, got our stuff, and uh, headed back home. So, wow, yeah, that was definitely a it was a crazy twenty four hours after Rudy Gobert tested positive in the NBA for the coronavirus. Too, it felt like the world shut down literally twenty four hours later. And if things were still yes. open, it felt like what are you doing? Like you have to close. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, very surreal, and uh, ho- hopefully we, we get a vaccine for this and we can be, beginning of 2021 here, we can uh, be done with this uh, mm-hmm. sooner rather than later. So as we as we get to the, the close here, Coach, I have a few more kind of macro questions before we get to some fun ones at the end. I'm curious, as for you, you mentioned when you were really, l- not, not really learning the game, but uh, helping to build up your knowledge to win over the trust of, of your players while you were first starting out. You would go to a lot of coaching clinics. You would watch a lot of YouTube videos. I'm just curious now as a head coach, what do you try to do in the summer times or the off seasons to try to improve your coaching? Because with NCAA rules, it's not like you can go out and coach 400 games in the summer at camps all over the, the country. As a player, it's easy. You want to become a better shooter, you go out and shoot a 1,000 jump shots a day until you, you get better. But a coach, it's a little different. So I'm just curious, how do you try to improve your coaching in the offseason? Yeah, yeah, good question. Uh, I, I read a good amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like reading stuff on leadership and, and, and different different leaders in a variety of professions. Uh, I try to go to AAU practices uh, and watch and learn their drills and, and their system Certainly watching a good amount of AAU over the summer. Uh, there's some really good programs in this area that run like really, really solid practices. So I do that. And uh, yeah, I, I try to uh, as much as possible just think outside the box. So, mm. I mean, I've I've tried to mirror other coaches in, in a profession that I, I really admire is college football coaches. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, I, I feel like I get lost sometimes with like 15 <laughs> or 20 people on my roster. How, how they deal with having a staff of whatever, 10 to 15 other coaches, uh, grad assistants, uh, and then whatever, 60, 70, 80 football players. Yeah, and then teams. just organizing that and keeping everyone on the same page, to me, is fascinating. Because keeping, in total, 100 people on the same page and, and communicating with them is is a lot harder than uh, a basketball team when it's <laughs> when it's literally a fifth of that, if right. not, uh, not less. So. Well, uh, I, I try to go to do a football practices occasionally and try to learn from different people uh, in that aspect as well. Well, you had the opportunity to go to a Nick Saban practice, right? To go down to Alabama. What was that like yep. watching a Nick Saban who might be the best college football coach of all time? I don't, I don't know how he compares to the guys from the 50s or the 60s, but in recent memory, he's number one and it's not really close. What was that like? Yeah, I've... 
I've done that twice actually, and okay. I learned something new each time. So it's uh, it, uh, unbelievable just the way he teaches his organization. There, th- I mean, above all else, their attention to detail. Granted, it certainly helps when you have a massive staff yeah. <laughs> and 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 a lot of resources. They're not taking that away from them, but. They they do an unbelievable job in terms of just just communicating and and, and across the board just being a class act. Even just when I'm there, they have someone always talking to me or sitting and asking if I have any questions. And again, I'm, I'm not a huge football guy in terms mm-hmm. of the X's and O's of football, but the, the way they go over things and their terminology and uh, I, I've taken things each time and brought it back here because the way they do things, certainly on a much smaller level, because I don't have quite the amount of resources that they do, but they, uh, I, I think anyone, whether it's you, you have a small business or your Fortune 500 company, you can learn a lot from other organizations that uh, are exceptional at what they do, and uh, I learned a, a ton each time, so... We've all had a lot of downtime this summer with, with, you know, not a lot going on. We're all trying to stay indoors and staying safe. The NBA, the WNBA has been back, though, basically since the end of July. We're recording this on Thursday. When this comes out, the NBA Finals game fight will be that that night. I'm curious, how do you watch basketball nowadays? Can you sit back and watch a game as a fan or is your coaching brain always on noticing little things and coverages and ATOs and all the little things that go into a basketball game that the average fan doesn't see? Can you turn that part of your brain off and just sit down and just enjoy the game? Or is that coaching side always on? Uh, that's an interesting question because yes, yes and no. Because there are times when, when certainly there's like an out-of-bounds play or, or certainly a special circumstance end of the mm-hmm. game well, they'll run something, and, and then I'll I'll really hone in, but uh, not take anything away from it. But uh, as you know, when you watch the NBA, at times there's not a whole lot going on at a <laughs> or a high ball screen and then playoff. So, so that to me is when you can really I mean, don't have to think a whole lot because when when you have LeBron James uh, the other night, I felt like Rondo screened for him like four consecutive times, yeah, and then they just made a different read off it. You know, there's only so much. <laughs> You, you can take from that per yeah, se. Yeah, uh, yeah, but, yeah but coach. Yeah, uh, I, there, there are different times when I try to, uh, to to take a step back and just be a fan, and other times I'm like, oh, this is pretty interesting. So let me rewind it or let me mm-hmm. go back and watch that clip again. So a little bit of both. Yeah, Coach Kalsmalski from Swarthmore was on this podcast about a year and a half ago now, and he said a very similar thing was that he didn't really watch a lot of the NBA just because from you know there wasn't a lot to learn from it, as as, as what you're saying. There's not a lot of things you can take away for your program to learn when it's just LeBron trying to get Tyler Hero on him on a switch so he can drive right by him. Like that's not something that the Division Three women's game that's not a factor because you don't have someone like LeBron James. Yeah, no, exactly. And we, we can't run an out of base on a bounce play and throw a lob for an alley oop. Like yeah, no one, no one, no one dunking around here or may, or you know taking off from. Uh, from eight feet from the basket, so that's where there's certainly a wide variety of differences. But certain actions and sets, for, for sure, like I'll definitely write down. But I, I don't really watch a whole lot of NBA for that reason because, again, especially at times, there's not a, not a whole lot of great actions being run during a, a typical normal game, except for at, at moments during the end. Interesting, interesting. Well, Coach, I really appreciate all the time. As we wrap up here, I have five rapid fire questions in the podcast. Okay. Number one, do you have any pregame superstitions? 
Pre-game superstition? Uh, no, I just go through the same thing. I mean, we always have a team meal before the game. And then after the team meal, I come in and just go through uh, actually just a meeting with my coaches, which I got from uh, Nick Saban actually at Alabama, just a, a meeting of the obvious where we go over <laughs> uh, as many things that could possibly happen in the game and how mm. we're going to react to them. Do you have a favorite drill? Um, no, to be honest, I, I don't. I mean, uh, I try to keep switch things up as, mm-hmm. as much as possible and, uh, and not get too stale with doing the same exact drill, different variation of it, yes, but not the same exact one too many days in a row. We've talked about Nick Saban on this podcast, but do you have any other coaching mentors or idols where it's like, you know, you you see on your phone, oh, this team or this coach is playing tonight. I got to make sure to tune in or to DVR that that game or check it out on on Synergy. Yeah, it, it worked out because I'm from Boston and uh-huh. I'm a Celtics fan and I'm a big fan of Brad Stevens. So oh, beautiful. to begin Perfect. with, so that, that kind of worked out really really nicely. But yeah, a, a, any coach honestly who ha- has worked their way up in the profession, whether it's Eric Spolestra. From the heat, you know, started as a video coordinator. Mm. Anyone who has started, quote-unquote, at a lower level, at a lower position, and worked their way up, I will always try to watch them or or take something from them, uh, if at all possible. We didn't get to talk too much about your golfing uh, career or uh, coaching or just experience on this podcast. As we, there's too much stuff, other stuff to cover. What is either your favorite course to play at, or just your your favorite uh, most memorable round of golf you've you've ever played? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, favorite course? Uh, actually, didn't play it, but I, I mean, I, I remember walking it. Was Pebble Beach? Was the U.S. Okay. Amateur when I was twelve, thirteen years old? I remember walking it with my family and my dad. Uh, and then most memorable rounds. Nothing uh, per se stands out. I had some rounds in high school where we played uh, shorter, like uh, nine-hole courses, which were challenging, but certainly weren't like uh, PGA Tour esque, like, <laughs> where I shot where I shot good uh, good numbers, where I had shot like a thirty-three or thirty-four oh, wow. nine holes. So those are probably the most probably the most memorable. And I'd say going back to when I, I played really well. So this one doesn't have to be on the rapid fire end, but this is a fun one. During your time with the Red Sox, the most uh, maybe talked about player in the whole league was Manny, Manny Ramirez. He was known as being a guy who uh, beat to his own drum. He was he was just different in a lot of ways, as, as people say. Do you have a story you can share of the famous term of Manny being Manny? Uh, I have stories, yes. One <laughs> that I can share. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, I can't think of any that are PG rated off the top of my head. Manny was the one of the most unique human beings I've ever met. Uh, I would say that the thing that stood out to me the most was, yeah, was he quirky and kind of out in left field per se? Yes, but he was the hardest worker I have mm. ever seen. Wow. Manny would get there in the morning, the game's at 7 o'clock, he'd get there at 10 a.m., left, go home, take a nap, come back watch film and or be in the batting cage. And this is a rough estimate. The three to four hours before the game, well, almost consecutive. Maybe maybe do it for an hour, come back up, grab something to eat, watch film, go back down. But you wouldn't see him at times because he'd be in the batting cage or studying film for so long. Right. And then after the game, or better yet, if there are some games, he'd come in in between at-bats, and after his first at-bat, he'd watch it on film 
to get a tip on the pitcher and then go back out when he wasn't hitting that inning and then go out and do it again. So I, I think the amount of work and dedication he put into his craft compared to the, the type of person, which is fun, goofy, and kind yeah. of all over the place, but how much time he put into it, people that, unless you're in the locker room, incredible amount of time, actually surreal, that, that, that he put that much time into his craft, uh, kind of with anything, to, to get really good at something you have to do stuff behind the scenes that right. no one else actually comprehends. And he, the word hard work is, is on a different level because he was unbelievably passionate about hitting and uh, getting better at hitting. So Yeah, not so much the the fielding aspect sometimes, but he was an incredible No, hit. definitely not the fielding. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember being up. Yeah, definitely, definitely the hitting and uh, the hitting aspect I- and the, the mechanics of it. He was completely locked in all the time yeah well he, he's a new york guy george washington high school and i just remember hearing the stories from my high school baseball coach about making mistakes of deciding to pitch to manny uh to to manny in high schools that everyone who was young said we can do it and then they threw a couple fastballs to him and they never pitched to him ever again <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well, yeah he, he, he didn't miss a whole lot no well coach i really really appreciate all the time as always on the double double we give the last word to our guests to the coaches do you have anything you want to say or shout out to the great people of newburgh oregon no first david i pr- appreciate you having me on uh i certainly hope this uh this podcast continues to improve and and and, and continue to make a lot of progress uh and i appreciate your, your questions and your insight and uh anything i can do to to help you in the future, certainly, uh, certainly let me know. And above all else, to, to everyone, stay safe and healthy. And, and hopefully, uh, we get through these next uh, these next few months and winter months. And hopefully, uh, 2021 is uh, a little less drama and, and chaos than uh, 2020 has been. Yes, for sure. Well, coach, really appreciate that, and really appreciate all the time. Best of luck this year. Hopefully, we get we get some game action for uh, for George Fox to. You know, maybe win a back-to-back Northwest Conference titles. Who knows? That would that would that would be nice. That would be <laughs> fantastic. All right, Coach. Take care. All right, thanks for you too. All right, thanks to Coach Coppolino. I hope you guys all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. Before we wrap up here, just want to hit on a couple things in, in the world of sports. First thing, this is a week in the NFL. There's only one kind of marquee matchup in terms of records. At the 1 o'clock games and only one at the 4 o'clock games, we have Raiders-Chiefs at 1 o'clock, CBS. Mahomes is incredible. The Raiders are pretty good. The Raiders are 2-2. and They beat the Saints, but who knows how good the Saints are. They struggled against the Patriots. This is a chance. Chiefs 4-0. Short week for them. They're favored by 12 points in this game. So either Vegas thinks that the Chiefs are insanely good or they think that the Raiders stick. And this will be a real chance to see... How good the how good are the Chiefs and how bad are the Raiders? Because the Raiders, I think, just from watching them, are solid, totally fine. Maybe at nine and seven, eight and eight, ten and six if they're a lucky team. And the Chiefs looked slow against the Patriots yesterday. They started really, really slow, but against the Ravens, they looked like a juggernaut. So who knows, right? Uh, this could be a game where the Chiefs looking ahead to next week, where they got the Buffalo. This could be a game where it's close until Mahomes has to work his magic, or this is a game where, where they come out and blow him out. But this is a game, chance to see how good is Kansas City and maybe how good is, is o- sorry, not Oakland, Las Vegas, because the line is 12. That that jumps out to me as what am I missing when watching these 
these two games because Vegas sees something that I'm not seeing. The other game at 425 is Colts-Browns. This line is even. So either Vegas thinks these two teams are even because they're both really good, they're both really bad, or they're both mediocre. Vegas says this is a pick game. And so the game is at Cleveland, CBS 425. Cleveland historically has played well against bad teams and not so great against good teams. The Colts 3-1, and one, just by pure record, fall into that good category. I don't really know how good they are. Phillip Rivers has looked good so far. He's old, though. They, they have a good running game, great offensive line, pretty good defense. Um, we'll see. This is a chance for me to see how good are the Indianapolis Colts. And also, can the Browns start playing well against pretty decent teams? Because this is a game the Browns, if they win and go to 4-1, and one, this is huge, huge for them. And just, just in terms of changing the mentality we all have around them. So besides those really two games, this is a, a weekend where if you want to get out of the house, you know, I don't know if pumpkin patches or uh, apple picking is a thing this year because of COVID, but, but if, but if you got to get out of the house, do stuff, this could be a good Sunday to do so. Hey, if you got to go drop off your, your mail-in ballot at the mailbox, you know, that this, this could be a good Sunday to do that. Other news we have tonight, Friday, the ninth, we have game five of the NBA finals Lakers up three, one game four was a bloodbath in a lot of way, physical game back and forth. Really, really enjoyed it. Hopefully, Game 5 tonight is just as good. I'm pulling for a Game 6. You know, I'm, I'm in this. I want to see more more basketball. This this has been a pretty good series to watch. Very entertaining. Like watching this Miami team. Like watching this this Lakers team. We can get to Game 6. That would be great. But I think the Lakers win tonight. I think LeBron knows what's at stake tonight. Davis knows what's at stake tonight. Hey, Jimmy knows what's at stake tonight, too. I wouldn't be surprised if Jimmy comes out tries to dominate early on, super, super aggressive. Miami's really good. This is the first time this whole postseason that their backs have truly been against the wall, elimination game. Let's see how they respond. But I just think LeBron knows this is the moment. You win it tonight, his fourth championship. It's it's a big one, just in terms of his legacy. I and mean, we all know LeBron LeBron is legacy-focused. He he understands all the things that that, that go on uh, and how we all evaluate him. So I'm really looking forward to that. And, you know, Yankees raised tonight. My man Garrett Cole's on the mound pulling for my team, the New York Yankees. But it's a great night of sports to make up for what, what, what may be not a great Sunday in terms of football, just in terms of matchups. But, hey, the NFL, anyone can win any given game, always close games. But uh, really looking forward to tonight's uh, to, to tonight's. Uh, sports so that'll do it for this episode of the double double if you like this podcast you can find us on itunes spotify or wherever your podcast where you can subscribe rate and review five stars be much much appreciated you also follow us on twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast we'll be back next week until then take care and make it a great day